Good morning and welcome to Rising Fridays. I'm Amber Duke and I'm joined by Jessica Burbank to bring you today's show. Good morning, Jessica. It's good to be with you, Amber. An exciting time for news. What's going on with uh, our buddy Jeffrey Epstein? Great question. Megyn Kelly actually delivered a cryptic message after the first batch of Epstein documents were unsealed. Let's take a look. Fascinating and we're not done with Jeffrey Epstein. I can tell you that for a fact. Can't tell you how I know, but I can tell you for a fact, we're gonna hear a lot more about Jeffrey Epstein in the coming year. Uh, and you may be even hearing from him directly. More on that as I'm allowed to tell you. Also, Tucker Carlson hosted Epstein's brother, Mark Epstein, on his show where he revealed inconsistencies in the government's explanation for how his brother died. High profile inmate in the most secure federal facility in the country's largest city who was somehow murdered Clearly with the knowledge of the Justice Department and the Attorney General of the United States lies about it, which he did, and there's no reason to do that except to cover up the crime. So what, is that, what does that tell us about this? Oh, it's a scary thought that you could be killed in prison by the government. That your brother was dead in his cell and had been dead for two hours. At, Somebody, least, at least two hours. At least two hours. Yeah. Somebody cut off his clothing and redressed the corpse in hospital scrubs, in a gown. Yeah, I have a photograph of him uh, in a hospital gown on a gurney in a hospital where, you know, his arms were put through the sleeves. It's one of those gowns you tie in the back. So the question becomes, you know, who decided to dress a dead body in a hospital gown? Normally they're either in a body bag or covered in it by a sheet. So That's bizarre. Yes. And four and a half years later, you have no answers at all on none. any of these questions. None, none. The autopsy photographs show that the ligature mark on Jeff's neck is in the middle of his neck and goes straight back. As if someone put a rope around his neck and strangled him like Carlo in The Godfather. Mark Epstein also told the New York Post that back before his death in 2015, his brother Jeffrey confided in him that if he shared, quote, what he knew about both candidates, the election would be canceled. Meanwhile, there's renewed scrutiny of the 2007 sweetheart deal that saw Epstein receive just 15 months in prison for child sex abuse. Alexander Acosta, the lead prosecutor on the case, was later questioned on the deal while interviewing for Secretary of Labor under the Trump administration. He reportedly told interviews, quote, I was told Epstein belonged to intelligence and to leave it alone. Acosta would later serve as labor secretary under Trump, only to quietly resign later over his handling of the Epstein case, which he has still never been publicly questioned on to this day. So a lot's going on here. I think one of the most fascinating parts of the documents we did have released, uh, so 40 of 250 exhibits, it's about a thousand pages that we have now, is we know that it was the case that Virginia G's attorney had tried to push back on this defense that Ghislaine Maxwell's team came up with, which is if Virginia is saying that when she was at Epstein Island, Bill Clinton was also there, she's lying, that's insane, Bill Clinton was never there. And so the response of the prosecution was, okay, if you're saying that my client is not credible and is lying, saying that she saw Bill Clinton on the island, why don't we depose Bill Clinton? Let's ask him ourselves, the one person that would have to tell the truth under oath. So we settled this. And the judge, ultimately U.S. District Judge Robert Sweet, said it was irrelevant. 
and then Bill Clinton was never deposed, despite this being a large part of Ghislaine Maxwell's team's defense. So ultimately, the case was settled. It never went to trial. That's very suspicious, considering the request by Virginia G's attorney happened just a few days after Hillary Clinton clinched the Democratic nomination. And then, you know, months of back and forth. And ultimately, you know, the case is settled, which I think is a fancy legal way of sometimes saying they paid her to shut up, to stop talking about it. So there's really a lot here. We've seen photographs of Bill Clinton, Elon Musk, Prince Andrew, we obviously know is a huge part of this. Uh, Donald Trump, all of these, you know, very prominent public figures with Jeffrey Epstein. And we don't have Jeffrey Epstein here to depose, but we do have a lot of documents and we'll see what else comes out. Amber, what's your initial reaction to all of this? Yeah, I found myself sort of gravitating towards the same information you did, um, especially there was an email from Virginia G that suggested Bill Clinton, well, not suggested, it straight up said, but, you know, allegedly Bill Clinton went into the offices of Vanity Fair and threatened them not to write an article about his friend Jeffrey Epstein. He, of course, is all over the flight logs. We've known that for a while now and was also spotted in that eyewitness account from Virginia, apparently on Epstein Island. Um, there's also more details coming out about Prince Andrew and even um, Stephen Hawking that they allegedly participated in these underage orgies and, and sexual um, assaults that took place repeatedly in the Jeffrey Epstein orbit. I think what's interesting about Trump's inclusion in the documents is how little it actually says. Um, he was not spotted on Epstein Island. She never saw him on the plane, basically said that she didn't believe that he had any knowledge of what was going on. The only time that Jeffrey Epstein himself ever brought up Trump was he allegedly wanted to invite him to go gambling with him in Atlantic City. And then we know that him and Trump had a falling out at some point. Trump claims that he kicked him out of Mar-a-Lago because he was hitting on underage girls. Um, or I think specifically it might have been the daughter of one of the members of the club. And so then they ended up not being friends after that. But um, Megyn Kelly's, uh, 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 I guess, preview of what's to come is something to watch, too. If you listen to the wider context of that clip, it seems like she's talking about perhaps the tapes that Jeffrey Epstein made of himself talking about some of the blackmail and uh, other relationships that he had with high-profile people. And so I, I hope that that comes out. It seems like um, these were a little bit unsatisfying, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing what the rest of the documents say as well um, as they're unsealed by the court, because outside of the Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, and Stephen Hawking revelations, there hasn't really been that much, I think, that helps illuminate exactly how Jeffrey Epstein got wealthy, exactly how he was able to maintain these relationships with all of these high-profile people, and exactly who all was involved in the actual trafficking of these young girls. Right. We know that, you know, this case that was settled in 2017, where Virginia D., who was a 17-year-old at the time, was allegedly trafficked by Ghislaine Maxwell. That's what this case was about. And then, of course, was photographed with, Prin with Prince Andrew directly. And then she had testimony that he had done some very criminal things to her. And of course, an undisclosed sum of money was paid by Prince Andrew to Virginia G. Again, this kind of situation where it's legal to pay someone to stop talking about something. Prince Andrew lost his military duties, his public duties with the royal family. They tried everything they possibly could to keep this quiet. The royal family did. 
and these these documents being unsealed thanks to Judge Loretta Preska, who said there was no legal reason they were sealed in the first place. Now we're getting a lot of information that, you know, these very rich and very powerful people tried to pay to have go away. And so the Prince Andrew stuff, we knew a lot of it, but uh, there was a lot of information that didn't get out that probably could have about the royal family and other people Virginia G saw there, um, you know, just because she was paid to not talk about it. So it, it just feels like justice that this information is becoming public at all. Yeah, I agree. It's a it's a good first step, hopefully, in this saga. Um, I think another big question that needs to be answered is how exactly Jeffrey Epstein was able to avoid accountability for so many years and the extent of the alleged cover-up that took place because of the protection of these high-profile individuals who were involved in it. Um, I, I know that Alex Acosta, the former labor secretary uh, for Donald Trump, has said that he was basically pushed into giving Jeffrey Epstein a plea deal the first time that he was charged for some of this behavior, and he thinks it was because of his high-profile connections and possibly even his connection with the intelligence organizations in the United States. States. Some people believe that he was actually an asset for U.S. intelligence, which would also help explain why he was able to keep uh, out of prison for so long. We're going to leave it there. We'll be back with more Rising after this. This just in, next week, the House Judiciary Committee is set to deliberate on a resolution to cite Hunter Biden for contempt of Congress. This action comes in response to his noncompliance with a subpoena, as he did not attend a scheduled deposition before investigators from three committees probing his business affairs. As you may remember, rather than appearing last month as required, the president's son expressed his readiness to engage with the panels exclusively in a public setting while speaking on the Senate lawn. Lawmakers said last month they would hold Biden in contempt of Congress. Biden's legal team did not immediately respond to request for comment on Friday. So it sounds like, you know, from this reporting that Biden might be hiding something. Hunter Biden might be hiding something. I can understand why you would want the hearing to happen in a public setting just so that everything you say gets out and they can't decide to keep in certain things and release others. But, you know, that's the nature of a congressional, you know, subpoena. And to hold him in contempt of Congress is a reasonable thing to do if he doesn't, you know, cooperate with the subpoena. This was the same thing that Donald Trump did with the January 6th committee, if we remember back to when Trump said he wasn't going to testify unless he could do so in a public setting. So, you know, if you're someone who was outraged by Donald Trump's decision there, but you think Hunter Biden's being totally reasonable here, it's a bit of hypocrisy. You know, I think as as same with Donald Trump refusing to testify in the January 6th scenario with Congress, you know, Hunter Biden taking the same course of action. OK, they should both get the same treatment. Yeah, I just don't think Hunter Biden's explanation for why he wants to testify publicly holds water because Jim Jordan has already said that they would be willing to both have this closed door deposition as well as a public hearing. And considering the nature of the alleged crimes here, it makes sense to do some things behind closed doors. There's a lot of financial documents and information involved that would require significant retractions if they were talked about in a public setting. So being able to do this in a closed door deposition is to make sure that all of the information in relation to the alleged crimes can actually be talked about openly and honestly, not to mention 
mention the fact that these public hearings are often done just for show. A lot of these Congress people have their staff write these gotcha questions. Everybody only gets five minutes to even ask about it. A lot of the members who are involved, um, frankly, don't really have any business being involved in some of these public hearings anyway. They'd be better off ceding their time to an expert or to another member of Congress. And so typically, I think the closed-door depositions do just render more information. So it makes sense to me for them to do that first, then have the public hearing, and Hunter Biden can feel like he's done whatever he needs to do to clear his reputation or what have you. It's also worth pointing out that there have previously been two Trump affiliates who were charged with contempt of Congress when they refused to testify to the January 6th committee. Peter Navarro and Steve Bannon both were charged with contempt and uh, were facing jail time for that um, because they did not want to comply with the subpoena. They said that the January 6th committee was politically motivated and therefore they shouldn't be required or compelled to come testify. And Congress said, no, you're wrong. We're going to hold you accountable. So I agree, Jessica, there's no reason why Hunter Biden shouldn't face the music. Yeah, I, if he's referred to the Department of Justice and the committee votes to hold him in contempt of Congress and there's potential charges, you know, that's fine. I think what Hunter Biden is doing is probably, you know, you know, an effort to never have to face the music. Um, I think what's happening here is is he's saying that there's no fairness or decency in what Republicans are doing. They're spreading all of these lies about me. But we know that he did sue the Overstock.com CEO over defamation, over false claims. He's really upset that the Republicans in this committee have made a lot of claims without presenting the evidence to back those claims about Hunter Biden's business dealings, about his personal life. I don't know. I think a, a deposition would be a time to clear the air on many of those things. And if they're not true, and they're being spread very publicly, almost to the point where uh, a lot of the things that have been alleged without evidence evidence are considered fact to many people. That sounds like grounds for a defamation lawsuit again. Why is he not pursuing that if the claims are not true is a major question that I have. Yeah, I also think we have to look at uh, Eric Swalwell's involvement in helping Hunter Biden defy that congressional subpoena. He was the one who booked the space for him on Capitol grounds for him to hold the presser. He, uh, Hunter Biden, that is, lied to Congress, said he was coming to do the deposition. And instead, he rolls up in his car, he gets out, and he holds this press conference where he's completely defiant about testifying, says he's not going to do it. And then he rolls off, and we find out that Eric Swalwell was the one who helped facilitate that. I asked Greg Stubbe, a Republican congressman on Fox Business the other day, if they were going to look into Eric Swalwell. And he told me that um, the chairman, James Comer, was interested in it and discussed it, but basically they didn't have any uh, tangible uh, attempts to try to hold him accountable. But I think if you sort of aid and abet someone to commit a crime, or in this case, um, the crime being contempt of Congress, refusing to comply with the subpoena, then maybe you should have to um, face some consequences as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious if what's going to happen is if they're going to vote to hold him in contempt, or if they're going to say, like, fine, let's have a public hearing. I'm not sure in this scenario why they wouldn't want to have Hunter Biden be questioned in a public hearing. They could have some kind of compromise here and say, all right, we're going to keep a lot of the documents that need to remain classified, classified, but we are going to ask you the same questions that we're talking about in the media, that we're doing late night news interviews on cable TV about. Those subjects, I'm sure, are fine to discuss as they discuss them publicly themselves. So these Republicans, I think, uh, if they want, could just have a, a, 
a public testimony from Hunter Biden in the committee. And then maybe Hunter Biden would agree to be privately deposed on the things that are national security concerns. That seems a reasonable way forward. And the back and forth between, you know, Hunter Biden and the chairs of this committee has been excruciating to watch because you have Hunter Biden on the one hand not really cooperating, seemingly hiding things. And then you have the Republicans alleging things that they are not presenting evidence for. I think this would be a fine way forward where now we have answers under oath to a lot of the questions all of them are asking, and they get the deposition that they've wanted behind closed doors. Yeah, and, and Jim Jordan, I know, has said that he is open to both having the private deposition as well as the public hearing and would be interested in negotiating that. But it looks like Hunter Biden's lawyers just haven't been willing to even discuss the idea of a private deposition. They only want the public hearing, which is obviously a, a, a huge problem for the uh, House Judiciary Committee on the Republican side. There's also this story coming out of the New York Post that um, Hunter Biden's so-called sugar brother, the Hollywood attorney Kevin Morris, is backing a soft-focused documentary on the uh, on Hunter Biden, um, and uh, will apparently a film crew has been trailing Hunter for years and was recently spotted recording him as he publicly defied that subpoena. So um, I am hopeful that this documentary would come out. What a fascinating piece of television that would be, Jessica. Yeah, definitely. I mean, to make documentaries about things like this, super fascinating. I really want some kind of conclusiveness to come out of, you know, this committee's review of Hunter Biden's bank statements. I really think that if we had something concrete uh, to say that Joe Biden was, in fact, colluding with Hunter Biden around Ukraine and Hunter Biden's involvement with Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company, if we had something concrete about this payment that allegedly went to, you know, the big man, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and was split. But of course, in reviewing Hunter Biden's bank statements, we're likely not to find anything because what they said when this investigation started was that it was intentionally made impossible to find. So right. any bank statements are probably not going to be helpful. What they really need to, to find is some kind of alternative to traditional banking that either Hunter Biden or Joe Biden or Burisma was using and which funds could be transferred. So it was made in intentionally impossible. It seems the only real way forward is to question Hunter Biden directly, and it doesn't seem that we're going to get that. Yeah, I think they should also focus on some of the um, alleged uh, involvement that Joe Biden had with Hunter Biden's business, where he was using these pseudonyms to email with uh, with Hunter about calls he was going to have with uh, members of the government of Ukraine. And um, the public statement he made, of course, of firing the prosecutor, Victor Shokin. I think that angle is relevant, too, because even if Joe Biden, if they can't prove that is that Joe Biden personally profited financially from this, perhaps they can show that he was making policy decisions or policy changes or using his position to help Hunter Biden in business. Um, it's not exactly the same thing, but I think it's still a level of corruption that the American people have quite a distaste for. We're going to be back with more Rising after this. The 2024 GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley participated in her first solo CNN town hall last night, where she addressed Iowa voters on her controversial Civil War comments. Let's watch. You were asked to explain the cause of the Civil War. You obviously uh, did not mention slavery. And afterwards, you came up. You said that was a mistake. In fact, you said it should have been the first thing that you said. So you did come out and say that. Chris Christie, though, came out and said that you gave that answer 
not because in his, uh, you're, in his words, dumb or racist, but because you're, quote, unwilling to offend anyone by telling truth. What do you say to that? No one's ever said that I am unwilling to offend. I offend plenty of people because I call people out when they do something wrong. Um, what I will tell you is Chris Christie is from New Jersey. I should have said slavery right off the bat. But if you grow up in South Carolina, literally in second and third grade, you learn about slavery. You grow up and you have, you know, I had black friends growing up. It is a very talked about thing. We have a big history in South Carolina when it comes to, you know, slavery, when it comes to all the things that happened with the Civil War, all that. I was over, I was thinking past slavery. Haley was also pressed on accusations that she mocked and belittled the people of Iowa with a recent quip. So, Ambassador, I want to ask you uh, about something you said at a town hall in New Hampshire. You talk about the importance of New Hampshire and Iowa. We're here in Iowa. But you said about the primary process that while Iowa goes first, New Hampshire, quote, corrects it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Ron DeSantis said that was incredibly disrespectful to Iowa. Of course he did. And, of course, we are here in Iowa. I'm just looking around at people's faces. Okay, so uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? Look, we have done 150-plus town halls. <clears throat> you got to have some fun, too. Haley also took some jabs at her former boss, accusing him of being too soft with dictators. Watch. The second thing is you look at how he deals with dictators. I think it's completely wrong. He praised China's President Xi a dozen times after China gave us COVID. You don't do that. He congratulated them on the 70th anniversary of the Communist Party. We don't do that. When Israel fell to her knees, you're going to go pick a fight with Israel's prime minister because of some issue, personal issue you had with him before, and you're going to praise Hezbollah? It's just not what we need to do. We need to do this without emotion. We need to do this with a sane sense of how we're going to take America forward. All in all, Haley is trailing just four points behind primary leader, former President Donald Trump in New Hampshire, according to a new poll released just today. Further down south, things are a little less rosy for Haley as she's trailing Trump by 29 points in her home state, South Carolina. And as for Haley's number one nemesis, Vivek Ramaswamy, well, he posted this video to X yesterday telling his voters that a vote for Haley is a vote for the Patriot Act. You know, as bad as Joe Biden's censorship has been of the tech industrial complex and using tech companies to do through the back door what government couldn't through the front door. I mean, Jack Smith's subpoena, for God's sake, calls for anybody who's liked or retweeted a Trump post to be included in their subpoena of Trump's 2020 you know, whatever allegations they're making against him. Nikki Haley goes, ma makes them pale in comparison. I mean, this is somebody who wants every government-issued ID to be tied to a social media profile as a mandate for people being able to use the internet. And so if you're Larry Fink or Reid Hoffman or whoever, this is a far better puppet than anybody the modern Democratic establishment is actually able to put up while giving yourself the air cover to accomplish exactly your objectives. So, Jessica, I, let's dive in by uh, talking about Haley's response to her bungled answer on the cause of the Civil War. It seems like even at this point, she doesn't really have a good explanation for what exactly happened there. Yeah, I've lived in the North. I grew up in the North, just 45 minutes outside of New York City in Connecticut. 
in Stanford. I also moved to North Carolina during the COVID pandemic. I lived in the North and in the South. So the way people talk about slavery is different. The way people learn about slavery in the Civil War is different. But there's a way to tackle this without falling into this very common trap of saying, you know, it wasn't really about slavery. It was about economics, which is something a lot of people do to appease voters in the South who are sometimes taught this in public school and some who genuinely believe this. And I put it this way. The North benefited economically from slavery as well. They definitely try and paint the narrative of the Civil War like we were the good guys and the South were the bad guys and they wanted to do slavery so bad we had to fight a war to get them to stop. No, the biggest slave auctions were in the North. They were getting raw crops from the South very cheaply because they were not paying for the labor to produce it. They were benefiting from slavery tremendously. Think about how we handle drug offenses in the United States. If someone is selling drugs to someone else, the person that gets a more intense sentence is the person who's selling the drugs. So the North was just as guilty of slavery, if not more guilty of reaping the, the benefits of slavery and participating and perpetuating it. Uh, that doesn't mean the Civil War wasn't fought over slavery. You can say both sides were equally guilty and bad without saying that the Civil War was not fought over slavery. Of course, the North was fighting for slavery to end. You can recognize that they were fighting for it to end in the same way you can say that there are cops who sell drugs to someone else and then arrest them for doing drugs. Fine. But is slavery bad? Yes. Like, there's nuance in this. But uh, I think Nikki, Ka Nikki Haley just, like, really sway strays away from nuance, even in that response it felt very measured and calculated and not honest. And I think it's easier to have nuance when you're just being honest. Amber, what did you make of all of it? I think you're right that she really avoids nuance at all costs. Um, it was like that moment on the debate stage where Vivek Ramaswamy was sort of pushing back at the idea that Republicans should just send unlimited dollars to Ukraine and Israel and, and uh, in regards to other world conflicts. And her response was basically, there's a good guy and a bad guy, and our leader has to know who the good guys and the bad guys are. And it's just a very naive way, I guess, to look at the world and a very naive way to approach foreign policy, which is actually precisely the problem I had with her uh, attacking Donald Trump for his praise of Xi Jinping, because it removes all context from the situation. It's exactly like why we criticized Joe Biden when he called Xi a dictator to his face in that APEC summit in San Francisco. Because when you're trying to conduct diplomacy, it's usually not the best idea to insult someone to their face. And there's a time and a place for perhaps praising someone you might consider a foe or an enemy if you're trying to extract something out of them or if you're trying to perhaps tamp down tensions a bit. And that was precisely what Trump did throughout his presidency, was a lot of people complained about his rhetoric on the foreign stage, but it turned out he kept us out of a lot of wars that have now been started or intensified under the Biden administration. And she has previously done the same exact thing with Xi Jinping, by the way. She has praised China. She was actually the top-ranked governor for bringing Chinese-associated businesses to her state. That's according to research from the Rhodium Group. And her explanation for her praise of China when she was at the UN was, well, I was at the UN then, so that's different. But that's exactly what she's criticizing Trump for. Trump was president then. So what is really the difference between their two policies? I, I think she really does struggle um, uh, with having a, a, an honesty problem. 
Yeah, to say, well, what I was saying was different when I was working in the UN tells us everything we need to know about Nikki Haley. Her story and opinion changes based on what position she's in or what position she's running for. And to say that China is an enemy and to say black and white, uh, you know, whoever's a good guy should be on our side and our leaders should know who they are. Whoever's a bad guy we should be fighting against. That's just like not how the world works. Again, it's about nuance. But that's been a trend in U.S. foreign policy making for a century to just say there's good guys out there and there's bad guys out there. And we're going to tell you who they are uh, instead of just being very honest and saying, you know what, we actually go out and fight for U.S. economic interests abroad. That's what this China problem is about. They're worried that China's economy is growing and that it's outpacing the United States growth and production. And I've driven through South Carolina, you know, where I live in Charlotte is, you know, 20 minutes from South Carolina, you go into a gas station and you see these hats that are, you know, USA, Patriot, and they all say made in China. Nikki Haley is not someone who's tough on China when it comes to economics. And the United States would be ignorant, anyone in the administration, to think that we can defeat China's growth through framing them as an enemy and justifying some kind of proxy war in the South China Sea, in Taiwan, elsewhere. Uh, maybe it's time we learn how to cooperate with the people we share the planet with and recognize they have a role in the global economy as well. There's a way to mitigate international threats if they present themselves. Someone is not an enemy just because they have a bigger economy than the United States and can, can potentially out-trade us. That doesn't make someone an enemy. And so I think Nikki Haley, if she gets the nomination, it would be very dangerous if she won because it seems like more of the same, you know, neoconservative policies. Oh, yeah, she'll start a war with Iran, apparently, according to some of the things that she said on the campaign trail, the very disturbing stuff. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Did any of the administration's policies <coughs> contribute to the record number of border crossings? What I can say is this, on the, his first day in this administration, the president put forth a comprehensive immigration legislation to deal with a broken system. That's what the president did, to deal with a broken system. We were just a couple of weeks away of three years ago, that, that legislation that he put forward to Congress to actually deal with an issue, all right? And so that's what I can say. The president, president understands that there's a problem at the border. He put forth on his first day something to deal with that problem. And what we continue to see from Speaker Johnson and Republicans, House Republicans, I know Jackie asked a question about something that I said yesterday in May, and I'll repeat it, I repeat what I said yesterday, in May, House Republicans decided to vote on a bill that would cut 2,000 border, border Patrol agents at the border. That's what they did. That's what they did. And they continue to obstruct and get in the way of trying to, of the president wanting to move forward with a supplemental that includes border security. They're getting in the way of it. They're, they are. While Senate Republicans and Democrats in a bipartisan way are trying to find a way, a bipartisan agreement to deal with border security, you have House Republicans who left. They left in the middle of December. And I think they come back next week. Maybe they'll get some work done. Uh, instead, they're playing politics. So is that a no? I, look, what I can say is what the president has done. I'm not going to speak to data. I have not seen any data that would show this. 
That was White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre responding to a reporter's question on whether any of the Biden administration's policies have contributed to the record number we are seeing at the United States southern border of illegal aliens. Here's Texas Governor Greg Abbott on the border crossings into Texas. We have more people coming across our border every single day uh, than what New York gets in a week or a month. Mm -hmm. And so it's outrageous uh, that they're saying uh, that they cannot deal with this. But the, the last point, Dana, uh, is the fact that there's only one reason why this is happening. Uh, and that's because Joe Biden has eliminated all of the four policies that Donald Trump put in place uh, that led to the lowest illegal border crossings in 40 years. The Remain in Mexico policy, the Title 42 policy, the end of catch and release, and building a border wall. If the Biden administration was enforcing the immigration laws passed by Congress, uh, the mayors of New York, uh, the leaders of New Jersey and Chicago, et cetera, they would not be having these problems. This comes as a Biden administration official says that several border crossings that were shut down they were done so, so authorities could deal with an influx of migrants. Now they're reopening this week per Axios. According to United States Customs and Border Protection, encounters at the border under Biden have surpassed a record high of 1.64 million apprehensions from fiscal year 2000. In 2022, Border Patrol recorded 2.2 million encounters, and in 2023, encounters dropped to 2 million. So right now you have uh, essentially gridlock in Congress. House Republicans saying that they're not going to vote for whatever the Senate pushes to them, which would be some kind of compromise on what they're demanding, which is policies around the border, addressing the crisis at the border. But then you have Republicans like Troy Nell saying things like, let me tell you, I'm not willing to do too damn much right now to help a Democrat and to help Joe Biden's approval rating. I will not help Democrats to try to improve this man's dismal approval ratings. I'm not going to do it. Why would I? Schumer has had HR2 on his desk since July. So they're not in the majority. And they really want to pass HR2, which is a bill that, that the Democrats don't like. And so to demand them the Democrats pass legislation that they don't support as a minority party, you're not going to get anything done with that mindset. Do you really think that there's a crisis at the border if you're willing to do nothing at all just to hurt the president's approval ratings? That feels really disingenuous to make such a big deal about this issue and to not be willing to compromise, to not come up with new policies or strategies, which is literally your job as someone who writes legislation and is an elected member of Congress. But instead, what you're going to do is just, you know, I'm going to hurt the president's approval ratings and not address this thing that I deem a crisis. It just seems really dishonest political game playing from the Republicans in Congress. I think it's hard to compromise, though, when the Democrats have made clear that they don't really want border security. The bills that they have been in support of and the plan that the Biden administration has brought out only calls for faster processing times for the illegal immigrants that are coming across the border so that they don't have to stay in detention and they can immediately be shipped anywhere around the country. They don't actually want to increase funding for border agents or border security uh, officials. They don't want to increase funding for technology that would help secure the border. 
And the Biden administration, most notably, is not proposing any actual policy changes. They're not interested in bringing back Remain in Mexico. They're not interested in bringing back the safe third country. They're not even DNA testing all of the illegal immigrants who are coming across now. They've admitted that in several emails that have been leaked. And they're not interested in expedited removal of individuals who have been found immediately not to qualify for asylum. What they're doing is they're basically giving all of these people a court date, sending them various places around the United States. And this is the only, only the ones they catch, by the way. There's probably just as many that they don't catch who get across the southern border. And about 90 percent uh, somewhere between 70 and 90 percent of these immigrants who get a court date don't end up even showing up for it. So I don't see why the Republicans should negotiate with people who fundamentally don't want to move any iota in their direction in terms of border security. At that point, I think gridlock is probably the only way that they're going to get anything out of this whatsoever. I think threatening to shut down the government and not pass additional budgets just because you, as the you know minority party, uh, can't get what you want in. That's how this works. If you don't win the majority of votes and you don't get enough seats in the House to have the majority and enough seats in the Senate to have the majority, you don't get to dictate what policies are in this country. The people that elected uh, the members of the majority party oftentimes get to pass the policy that they deem reasonable because they're representing the population of people who voted for them. Republicans doing this right now, it's just undemocratic. Uh, Democrats don't have to compromise with Republicans on a number of cuts to funding, but they have. They've worked with them to try and get bills passed to fund the government. And so I think it's it's still dishonest, even if you believe the Biden administration has done a terrible job on border policy, you still have the Senate and the House as responsible for making legislation on the border. And they've reluctantly come together to make a deal in the Senate. And then you have all these House Republicans saying they're not willing to work with it whatsoever unless they get absolutely everything they want. They're like a bunch of toddlers that are throwing a tantrum in the store because they're not allowed to buy candy. And, you know, they're not willing to stop crying unless they get their candy. It's ridiculous. And it's much more serious than that, of course. But that's the vibes they're giving off by saying they're not willing to do their jobs and write legislation unless they get everything they want, knowing very well they're operating in a political system where that's how it works if your party doesn't win a clear majority. Well, the system also works because we have divided government such that the minority doesn't have to get trampled on either. It doesn't mean that the majority in one chamber of Congress gets to do absolutely everything they want and the minority party just has to take it. That's why we have votes that require 60 votes in the Senate. It's why we have both the, the House of Representatives and the Senate. That's precisely why, is to avoid the minority voice getting trampled. And by the way, I would point out as well that in terms of what Americans want, yes, they vote voted for Democrats to take control of the Senate and the presidency. But on the specific issue of immigration, they're on the side of Republicans. Immigration is the second most important issue for voters heading into 2024. And without question, they all say that they want more border security and that they believe the current situation at the border is a crisis. So I do think it is incumbent on Democrats to listen to their constituents. You even have members of the Democratic Party, like Mayor Eric Adams, like the Chicago mayor like Democrats who come from border states, Texas and Arizona, saying repeatedly that they too are frustrated with the current system as it relates to immigration. So I don't think this is just a Democrat versus Republican issue. There are clearly some Democrats, at least, that are willing to take a look at border security. In fact, Senator John Fetterman said uh, that he 
quite uh, uh, opposes his party's position that if you talk about border security or want to take a look at immigration, that you are a bigot. He thinks that is a, a reasonable issue to take a look at because of the impact that it's having on Americans. And yet no one else uh, over in the Senate with him seems to be willing to do that. Um, so I, I just think, I don't think Republicans are saying you have to give us every single thing we want on border security, but you have to give us something. And so far, the Democrats as, as a party have not given them anything besides, hey, we'll just give more money to housing and work permits for the migrants, and we'll also give them more money for processing. That's not border security. That's just making it easier and giving more incentives for people to come in. So there's a lot of things in H.R. 2 that I think would upset many Americans. This is not just a piece of legislation for border security. So, of course, we have compromise in the Senate. You have senators working together across the aisle. I'm not saying it's good that we have Democrats versus Republicans and majority rules every single time. I think it's good that members of the Senate have compromised on a bipartisan bill. What I think is ridiculous is what Troy Nels has done and said he's not willing to do anything that falls short of H.R. 2 because he doesn't want to improve Biden's approval ratings. That is a ridiculous reason not to support common sense border security legislation. I don't think most people across the United States would approve of everything in H.R. 2, things that wouldn't require CBP agents to take a polygraph test in situations where they're accused of criminal behavior. This would resume construction on the border wall. It would waive uh, necessary legal procedures that must happen before the wall is constructed. There's all kinds of things in this piece of legislation that the Republicans are so attached to in the House that I think many Americans who are for border security would say is not common sense border security and can actually be very harmful for the southern border and people across the country. I think if you're a House Republican and you genuinely care about the border, you will compromise to get something passed if this is an urgent crisis, as you say it is, rather than saying the reason you're doing nothing is because you don't want to approve or increase Biden's approval ratings. I think that's a really bad reason. I agree. I agree. I just I don't think Troy Nels is speaking on behalf of the Republicans in the House. He's not even in leadership. So I, I don't think using his statement, which is obviously stupid as representative of the party, is exactly fair. Well, the Republicans in the House have directly said they're not willing to vote to fund the government and are willing to shut it down if they don't get what they want when it comes to border security. And he's saying that his faction in the House will not vote for what the Senate pushes through. I hope they will, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, it depends on what the Senate passes on whether or not that's a fair enough compromise for them. But again, Troy Nils doesn't speak uh, on behalf of the party. We'll be back with more rising after this. New year, more crime. D.C. police have reported 43 vehicle thefts in the first three days of the new year, per WUSA 9 News. Concerned over crime in the district, Capitol Hill resident Jennifer Squires is leading a recall effort against council member Charles Allen. Allen spearheaded the D.C. Council's criminal code reform that Congress and President Biden blocked last year. Per Axios, the code was, quote, lambasted for lowering penalties on carjackings, among other measures. Squires, who had previously voted for Allen, formed a recall committee last month because she believes Allen's reform bill was, quote, going in the wrong direction. According to the data from the Metropolitan Police Department, carjackings in D.C. nearly doubled last year. Reporter John Fahey wrote on X, which D.C. council member worked to lessen penalties for carjackers. That's right, Charles Allen. He needs to be recalled ASAP. 
So D.C. really wasn't the only city that experienced an increase in carjackings. Uh, This was the only actual metric that's tracked by FBI data nationally. It covers about 78% of the U.S. population, where they saw a 10% increase in in motor vehicle theft, but actually a a decrease in violent crime by 8%, murder by 15.6%, rape by 14.8%, robberies down by 9.4%, aggravated assault down by nearly 7%, property crime down by 6.3%, burglary down by 11.7%, larceny theft also 8.5%. So every other metric, we saw crime go down by sometimes in in figures as high as 15%. So that's really good to see. So I think about like what contributes if property crime is also down and burglary is also down, Why are we seeing an increase in carjackings? I mean, we saw an increase in the price of of used cars and trucks go up by 40%. That's a very high number. I think people are really struggling to afford cars. And it's really sad because you see the main contributing factor of this to be markups done by dealers of 35 and 65%. And you see them raking in uh, record profits. So as the price goes up, their profits go go up as well. They're not just accounting for, you know, an incurrence of production cost. They're, they're just raising the price as a part of their regular dealership markup. And people are really struggling. They need cars to go get groceries, go to work, what have you. Uh, I think this is a huge misunderstanding of why people are, are taking cars. And I'll start with the fact, uh, with your point on violent crime. Across the country, yes, violent crime decreased between 2020 in 2023 for a variety of reasons, not least of which being the end of the pandemic. But in major metropolitan cities, violent crime is still up. In fact, in D.C., violent crime is up 39 percent. Carjackings have doubled, among other metrics. But on the issue of carjackings, the cars are not being stolen because people need cars to go get groceries. The cars are stolen and taken to chop shops where they are then torn apart and sold for profit, or they are taken to use in the commission of other crimes and then dumped elsewhere. So the vast majority of cars that are stolen in the nation's capital are often found later on, abandoned, sometimes destroyed. Not to mention the fact that a lot of the individuals responsible for these carjackings are one, repeat offenders, actually 80 to 90 percent of carjackings in D.C. are committed by the same group of 10 to 20 people, but also many of them are actually too young to even really drive, um, as was the case in the infamous story about an Uber driver who was carjacked by a group of teens. Those teens were too young to drive. They were between the ages of 13 and 15 years old. They ended up crashing the car and killing the Uber driver. So this is not a case of people stealing cars because they, they can't afford them and they need them to live their daily lives. They're taking these cars because, one, they can make money off of them, or two, they're using them in the commission of other crimes. I recently went up to Long Island and sat in with the DA there, the district attorney, Ray Tierney, and he told me that what happens quite frequently is that the cars are taken in the service of drive-by shootings and then abandoned as a means of trying to prevent a connection from the people who commit the shootings with the car. So I just fundamentally, your perspective on what's happening in D.C. and the carjackings is false. I would also say that Charles Allen has a problem far beyond the carjackings. He, in that rewriting of the D.C. criminal code, wanted to eliminate all mandatory minimums for all crimes. He wanted to reduce the maximum sentences for many of the crimes. And this bill was deemed so objectionable that The Washington Post, Joe Biden, and a huge swath of the Democratic Party rejected it 
And he was also responsible for this idiotic bill in D.C. that ended up passing. It's called the Second Looked Act. That passed in uh, 2020, I believe. That would allow anyone under the age of 25, because he says your brain's not fully developed by 25, so basically if you commit a crime before then, it's no big deal. Um, people under the age of 25 who are in jail for the worst offenses, including murders and rapes, can get out in 15 years so long as they abide by some certain guidelines. The judge is not even allowed to consider whether uh, they, they show remorse. They're not allowed to consider the nature of the offense. If that person serves 15 years in prison, so if you're a 20-year-old man who rapes and murders a woman, you can get out by the time you're in your mid-30s, thanks to this D.C. bill. So I would think it would be a huge service to the people of D.C. if Charles Allen and, frankly, some other members of the D.C. City Council who helped vote these proposals through would be recalled. I think now, as we're just getting in all of the national data on what crime looks like in 2023 compared to previous years, focusing on carjackings in D.C., which is probably the one highest metric you can pick, paints a particular picture about what's going on in the country and that kind of storytelling about the details of how carjacking happens, I think, is what contributed to the public feeling like crime was more of an issue than it was. Uh, concerns about crime are the highest it, they've been in a decade, despite nationally crime being down 8.2 percent. And you said that in America's biggest cities, violent crime is down. It's actually not. In the five biggest cities in America, last year's data shows that murders are down 10 percent. This data is not influenced murder's by crime only going down in rural crime, areas. What was murder, that? murder is only one piece of violent crime. Violent crime refers to all kinds of different, uh, different crimes that occur. In D.C., violent crime is up 39 percent over last year. Murder so carjackings is down 12.7%. There are two exceptions in the data. This includes Los Angeles, Chicago, New York City, Detroit, Baltimore, St. Louis, Milwaukee, New Orleans. Right, but you're talking uh, about murder, but being... you're saying that people shouldn't focus on just one metric this in terms of carjackings, but now you're saying just all... murder. Violent crime is up 39% in D.C., that's a fact. D.C. is one city in the United States. The and that's the one we're talking cities... about. Charles Allen is on the D.C. City Council. Right. And I think it's it's dishonest when we're getting all of the data in about crime from the year to just focus on D.C. and talk about carjackings. Well, people who when live in D.C. care about D.C. That makes sense, right? Their elected officials are pushing through propos proposals that make it easier for criminals to get off the hook, particularly the most violent criminals in the case of Charles Allen, who has the Second Look Act that he helped pass, right, and pass in 2020. That matters to people who live there. Of course it matters to people in D.C., but I think a lot of our viewers are not in D.C., and they care that violent crime has actually halved since 1990. It's a steady trend. It's not just year over year. And year to date, compared to last year, it's down 12.7% violent crime overall nationally. And so I think that's really important, especially when we've had so many mainstream media uh, news channels report that crime is such a problem. They're detailing stories of crime so much reporting on crime as if it's on the rise when it's actually nationally on the decline and murder is on the decline in America's major cities. We're also seeing a decrease in violent crime nationally at 12.7%. That's a significant amount. So I, I really think it's just fear mongering as an excuse for what? Potentially more investment in police when we're seeing America's largest police training facility being built. There's all sorts of reasons why they would want to put out this narrative as an excuse for an increase in punishment, an increase in imprisonment, and an increase in policing, when actually what we're seeing is that by every metric of violent crime 
across the country, it's on the decline, as well as property crime and burglaries. The it, one ex exception is carjackings. It does depend on what you compare it to, though, because as you said, in, in the 1990s, crime was incredibly high, violent crime in particular. That is 100% true. And crime has decreased steadily since the 90s. However, if you look at 2019 and 2020, that was when violent crime started to spike. And so yes, the numbers are down year over year, but they're still far higher than they were prior to the pandemic. That's why people still feel that there's a problem with crime, there's a problem with public safety. And Charles Allen uh, has been, I think, one of the worst things to happen to DC in terms of his uh, writing and proposal of all of these various changes to the criminal code, changes to how criminals are sentenced. And I think carjackings do matter. Um, I mean, yes, it's one data point. But if you're an individual who feels like you can't drive into your city and park your car in a street parking spot because you're liable to be subject to a carjacking, or in DC, armed uh, car robberies are, are up quite high as well, um, if you feel like you can't stop at a stoplight because someone might come up to your car and hold you hostage. Um, there's now a, a trend in DC where people are actually causing car accidents where they rear end someone so that when the person gets out to check if their car um, has been damaged, they will then take the car from that individual. So it's just saying, oh, it's just carjackings, like it's no big deal, I think kind of underplays the significance of the effect that this has on people's lives and their ability to feel safe in the city. Not to mention the fact that criminals don't stop with carjackings. Typically what happens is that when people get away with lower level crimes, over time they escalate their behavior and they get involved in more significant crimes and eventually turn to violence. This is a proven statistical fact that criminals tend to escalate the longer they go without consequences for their actions. It's also the case that longer sentences actually increase the level of crimes committed when someone's released. And we don't see a decrease in recidivism for increased years in prison. And when I think about people stealing cars to sell their parts, I think they're doing that not because they want to and because it's fun and very enjoyable. No, it's incredibly risky. I'm sure they would like to work a regular job. The lack of economic opportunity in the city is the real solution to this problem. It's the only thing that's correlated with uh, decreased recidivism rates among people who are previously put in prison or previously uh, convicted of a crime in the United States and increase in investment in education as well. And so that should be the policy approach of people in DC to find a way to increase employment and economic opportunities for people who can't afford to get a car for themselves and that's why they're stealing it or who are stealing cars and selling them for parts. I'm sure they would much rather be working a job than doing that. The solution is not increased sentencing and being harder on crime. We have one of the lowest unemployment rates in the past decade, but I'm, I'm sure they're just having a hard time finding a job. And your point on recidivism, I mean, the people who spend more time in prison are usually sentenced that way because they are the more aggressive criminals. They've usually committed violent crime or they've had multiple offenses already. It's not the case that someone goes in for a carjacking and spends 15 years and then they get out and because they've been so abused by the prison system that they go on to commit more crime. The correlation there is due to the fact that the worst criminals are the ones receiving the longest sentences. I, I hope we do another segment on this next week because there's so much to dive into, but we're out of time now. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Former Harvard president Claudine Gay shared her side of the story in an op-ed released in the New York Times Wednesday evening, arguing that the campaign to oust her from the university was, quote, merely a single skirmish in a broader war to unravel public faith in pillars of American society. Gay says she made mistakes while in her role, 
but denied claims she misrepresented research or plagiarized others' work. Gay, like anti-racist scholar Ibram X. Kendi and Reverend Al Sharpton, said that racism played a role in her ousting. Quote, it is not lost on me that I make an ideal canvas for projecting every anxiety about the generational and demographic changes unfolding on American campuses. A black woman selected to lead a storied institution, someone who views diversity as a source of institutional strength and dynamism, someone who has advocated a modern curriculum that spans from the frontier of quantum science to the long-neglected history of Asian Americans, someone who believes that a daughter of Haitian immigrants has something to offer to the nation's oldest university. In a rather surprising twist of events, Times opinion editor Kathleen Kingsbury encouraged readers to read guest essays on the Harvard incident to find out what really happened. Kingsbury wrote, as opinion editor, I rarely express my own views publicly on guest essays we publish, but here it's worth saying that in the current conversation around Harvard, I've been more drawn to arguments made by others. But the plot thickens. Journalist Lee Fong revealed that before Gay was set to testify to the House Committee on Education, an extensively documented 6,000-word dossier on Claudine Gay was anonymously shopped to journalists. The dossier formed the basis of many plagiarism allegations that later led to her downfall. Lee accuses a campaign by pro-Israel voices as responsible in an effort to take down several university leaders for failing to crack down on pro-Palestinian activists. As Brian Robbie covered yesterday, Gay will remain at Harvard in a teaching capacity, receiving a nearly $900,000 a year salary. So very fascinating, but not surprising. Of course, we know that Liz McGill, who was president of the University of Pennsylvania, also testified on the floor of Congress on anti-Semitism. But really what it ended up being was this kind of testimony around students being critical of Israel on campus, that being labeled as anti-Semitic, and them asking the university professors, or presidents rather, if they would tamp down on that rhetoric, if they would punish students for being pro-Israel. That's a ridiculous thing to ask university presidents to do. But of course, they didn't get the answers they wanted. And the result was then Ross Stevens, a very wealthy guy, paying $100 million to the university, threatening to retract that donation, unless Liz McGill resigned, essentially buying her position because she didn't have the political views he wanted. And then in the case of Harvard, you have the same kind of alleged plagiarism that Bill Ackman's wife did. It was a passage in her thesis that she did not quote, but the passage that was four paragraphs was directly stolen from other writers. So it was a technicality, right? She did credit the other writer's work throughout the paper, just as Claudine Gay did, but didn't attribute the quotes. Same exact situation. Claudine Gay's was reviewed by the university, by Harvard, no conduct violations found. So really what this is, is this is bullying. This is some other kind of excuse used to get her out of office because what? They couldn't buy her. Harvard has enough money, but it worked in the case of UPenn. Very obvious that there are pro-Israel voices behind this trying to quell students from learning about the situation in Israel-Palestine. Yeah, I, I would. I tend to agree in some cases that um, some of the, the pushback on campus behavior is really just trying to tamp down anything that's anti-Israel. But I think specifically in the case of the question that went viral for Claudine Gay, Liz McGill, and the MIT president was, is calling for the genocide of Jewish people 
a violation of campus policy. And basically, they equivocated and they waffled and they said that it depends on the context. And to me, that should be just an easy yes. Yes, this is in violation of campus policy. And so that was really what led to their downfall was the fact that they had apparently spent hours workshopping their answers with lawyers and still couldn't come up with something better than whatever it is that they said, um, which was very deeply unsatisfying. And then on the, the point about the plagiarism with Bill Ackman's wife, I would point out that in the cases that were floating around from Business Insider in that report on her, she did cite the individual in a paragraph notation right after the paragraph that she was accused of not using quotations on. She immediately apologized for any oversight and promised to go back and rework the uh, material to make sure that everything was properly attributed. But most importantly, she's not a university president. She doesn't even work in the university system anymore. Claudine Gay was the president of perhaps the most prestigious university in the United States of America. Um, so to me, there's just no excuse for her being in her position to have any semblance of plagiarism. When you compare the paragraphs, the 50-plus paragraphs, by the way, that were not properly cited, not even just um, without quotation marks, but she didn't even include a parenthetical citation immediately afterwards like Bill Ackman's wife did. But these are clear violations of Harvard campus policy. If any student were caught plagiarizing even once, let alone 50-plus times in this manner, there's no chance that they would be able to continue at the institution. And this is in addition to the fact that Claudine Gay already had a very very thin body of scholarly research before she was appointed to the president position. Um, so there's a question as to whether or not she was even qualified for the job in the first place. And to me, I think that her being demoted to a professor position where she's still receiving this $900,000 a year salary is pretty outrageous. And um, I'm sure we could probably talk in another segment, too, about why a university president is making nearly a million dollars a year when so many students are struggling to pay for tuition. But I'll kick it back to you, Jess. Yeah, I think in, in Claudine Gay's case, you know, as someone who's been a graduate student who's written three theses before, three theses before, uh, there's a process that you go through where you have your thesis picked apart and read by scholars in your field. And so Claudine Gay didn't, you know, paraphrase anyone's writing that she didn't directly cite. There are parts of large research papers where you're reviewing other scholars' work and ideas. It's very commonplace for scholars in that field to recognize that the writing is coming from, you know, someone who's a, a legacy founder of that field. And it's just generally understood that that's their work. This is extremely common. And so when her thesis was reviewed by, I'm sure, very many people, uh, and they found that there was nothing wrong with it, and it was accepted as her doctoral thesis, and then Harvard again reviewed, according to their code of conduct, her thesis and determined that you know, this really didn't violate their code of conduct. She wasn't stealing ideas. She was grappling with them and on occasion paraphrased with ideas that came from other authors that she did cite in her paper. I think that's why they found no violation here. I just think that, you know, her not writing a lot of, you know, scholarly work in her time as a professor before becoming president, it's not a red flag for me because I know most people who rise to leadership positions in universities. You know, I was a student at Harvard, you know, for part of my time when I was a graduate student at Brown, you're allowed to cross register. Uh, Harvard's the kind of school similar to Brown where the type of people in administrative positions uh, are not people that are publishing a lot of research. They're people who are interacting with students more uh, and they're people who are in administrative positions, gaining the experience needed to be in leadership of the university. They're interacting with students more uh, than they're interacting with research journals. And so I, I don't 
don't think that's a red flag for me. That's pretty common for people coming to leadership positions and now finding out that this was all an effort by, you know, a, a pro-Israel group. It, it really makes a lot of sense to me because it just doesn't feel right uh, that that she would be accused of committing intense plagiarism, considering all of the facts. I, uh, well, I guess I would push back on the idea that she uh, just cited people or paraphrased people uh, while not attributing a, a, a immediately close enough to the paragraph. I mean, based on the passages that I've read, it seems like she cited the people in the paper on a general basis, but didn't indicate that those paraphrased pieces were taken from their work. And then my understanding as well is that uh, her scholarly output was significantly lower than pretty much any other Harvard president, which is why it kind of stuck out to me. But we're going to have to leave it there. We're rising after this. DEI, ESG, WTF. Shark Tank mogul and former Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban got into it with a number of conservatives online over Cuban's view that DEI initiatives were positive for businesses. He was responding to a comment made by Elon Musk that, quote, discrimination on the basis of race, which DEI does, is literally the definition of racism. Cuban said good businesses look where others don't to find the employees that will put your business in the best possible position to succeed. You may not agree, but I take it as a given that there are people of various races, ethnicities, orientation, etc., that are regularly excluded from hiring consideration. By extending our hiring search to include them, we can find people that are more qualified. The loss of DEI-phobic companies is my gain. To which Musk responded, cool, so when should we expect to see a short white Asian woman on the Mavs? In a separate attack on DEI efforts, Lululemon founder Chip Wilson told Forbes that the company was, quote, trying to become like Gap, everything to everybody. And I think the definition of a brand is that you're not everything to everybody. You've got to be clear that you don't want certain customers coming in. A company spokesperson clarified Wilson does not speak on behalf of Lululemon. Here now to discuss the decline, seemingly, of ESG is Will Hilds, the executive director of Consumers Research. Will, welcome to the show. Robin. So if you're someone like Lululemon and you do want to become like Gap, everything to everyone, I mean, you've got to reach markets of people that may not look like your initial team of founders. You may have to hire people from the demographics that you aim to market the products to. I can imagine trying to market a product to a certain demographic, something that's super common for a company and, and not even knowing what to do because you don't have people on your team who represent that demographic. Could it be reasonable that DEI is actually good for business, or is that a stretch in your in your opinion? Well, what I would say, and, I, and you saw that in Mark Cuban's tweet as well, is that uh, the proponents of DEI and ESG like to play word games, sort of a Mott and Bailey approach, where they'll they'll throw out DEI and then define it in a way that is the normal course of, of how business is done. Long before DEI or ESG acronyms were used in this country, people hired marketing departments to look at demographics that they currently didn't sell their product in and figure out how they could market those, market those products to those new demographics and have a broader appeal to the market. That's not anything new. That didn't come with DEI. That didn't come with ESG. So I would say those are different questions, whether a company like Lululemon that's having a, trying to have a broader appeal might want to hire marketers that, that can get them into different demographics or whether they should have a DEI department that focuses their company not on their customers, 
but on racial and sex-based grievances, on focusing on bean counting around race and sex, that actually that's what DEI departments do. Those are two separate questions. And I would say the first is great. The second, the DEI is horrible, anti-American, and I think companies are, are uh, quickly coming to realize that. Yeah, Will, so when I was reading Mark Cuban's argument on, on X with some conservatives, I think um, a common uh, response to him was what you're talking about as DEI is not what DEI is in practice. Um, in your experience and in your work, you come across a lot of these DEI programs. How do they actually work in practice? Yeah, that's exactly right. And another person that responded to uh, uh, Mark Cuban was David Ackman, a hedge fund billionaire who kind of led the charge against uh, Claudine Gay and some of the other university presidents that had been pushing DEI. And what he said is, I, you know, I thought the same thing too, Mark, when I was you know, paying for DEI departments at these universities as a, as a philanthropist. But when I looked into it, when I actually looked at what they were doing, it was the opposite of trying to find people from diverse backgrounds and of opinions and viewpoints. It was just a monomaniacal focus on bean counting race and sex and sexual orientation and elevating people, as we saw in the case of, of President Gay at Harvard, elevating people who had not risen of their own merits and, in fact, in spite of ethical and plagiarism issues that they had in their uh, career, but simply on these race and sex-based uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, demographic questions, right? So what we see in, in corporations is that's how they operate inside. And while the additional thing, you know, I always get asked as we push back on companies doing this is, why did they start it in the first place? If it's just a waste of money, uh, you know, why, why, did they, why did they include it? And what we see is that's where the DEI and the ESG is, is tied in together. We saw a large number of asset managers like BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard were pushing politics into the corporate boardroom and pushing these companies to start DEI departments that really don't focus on the consumer. They focus on pushing a, a progressive uh, left political agenda. I want to back up a little bit here, Will. Are you saying, you know, Claudine Gay's rise to become president of Harvard was because of her identity as a as a black woman? Yeah, I think there's no question about that. Harvard admitted that when they began their search, excuse me, that led to uh, President Gay being picked. They they put parameters around the search based on certain DEI criteria. So there's no question about it. They, they themselves admit that that was part of, of the search. And that's part of what David Ackman was, was criticizing, is that it's actually the opposite of what Cuban is saying. It's not, hey, let's open the, the doors and look for people of merit where we haven't been looking before. It's let's close down certain areas. Let's say we're not going to pick a, a, a white male this time, regardless of, of who's, who's got the most uh, merit or the, or the best resume. We're only going to look in these narrow uh, demographic channels. Can you so dive a little bit? Go ahead, was, Jessica. Are you saying that there, it was impossible that there was anyone of merit who was a, a black woman, that limiting it to that pool based on identity meant that there would be no one eligible with you know, if we consider merits to be president of Harvard? No, not at all. But if what if what Cuban is saying, what people are advocating for is to find the best talent for a job, you don't want to filter by race and sex and all these things that we consider to be extraneous to that question. You'd want to find the best candidate. And that's not what Harvard did. They filtered by race and sex. So it's not that there aren't any black women who have talent. That's a ridiculous thing to even suggest. It's that if you're looking for the best person, what you shouldn't do is say, let's filter by black and filter by by woman. Let's look at all of the candidates that we can. You know, we're Harvard. They could have gotten, you know, theoretically pulled from anywhere in the United States, the best talent. It's it's absurd to simply exclude large portions of of the country simply by race and sex, which is, again, the opposite of how Mr. Cuban was defining DEI. 
Yeah, and I think you can also look at Claudine Gaines' history of academic output and see that it was incredibly thin compared to other previous Harvard presidents. But I want to go into this ESG question. You brought it up earlier as being connected to DEI. How exactly does ESG create incentives for companies to adopt these DEI policies? Is it, we won't invest in you if, if you don't do this? Or what exactly is the incentive structure there? That is a fantastic question because ESG and DEI are really just tentacles of the kind of the same, same animal. Uh, you have these large asset managers like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard who have trillions of dollars of assets. It's not their money, it's, it's ours, it's state, local, federal pension funds. And they use it to push a, their own political agenda in these boardrooms. And the mechanism of that is that they can hire and fire directors because of the large number of shares of these companies that they control, especially when they coordinate as they have done against a number of different companies they can really pick who's gonna run the company. And so if the person won't play ball with their political agenda, they can have that person fired. Uh, we've seen this specifically noted by Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock. He made a now infamous uh, uh, statement in a 2017 interview where he said that at BlackRock, we believe in forcing behaviors uh, and we use our assets under management to force behaviors. He was specifically talking about race and sex-based quotas or boards of directors. So this is exactly, I mean, this is literally ESG pushing DEI in the corporate boardroom, and then they will punish companies that don't, you know, enlarge their DEI department big enough to, to Larry's satisfaction. So when I think about ESG, you know, environmental, social, corporate governance, I think about the longevity of a shareholder's investment. If they're investing in a company that might pollute the planet and they want to consider, okay, well, there's no economy at all and there's no returns to be gained if we destroy the planet. I mean, that sounds like not just a political agenda, but also something that an investor or a shareholder would consider when investing in a company that jeopardizes the planet. Absolutely. And we get back to that initial statement I made where ESG and DEI try to latch onto things that companies have been doing for decades, for centuries longer than ESG has been around. You're 100% right. You should absolutely consider the long-term environmental impact of a, of a company if they've got an issue with, like BP had, where they had, a, had an oil spill. The interesting thing about the E and ESG is it actually covers for problems like that. When you actually look at the metrics that, that go into the E, it's a monomaniacal focus on so-called net zero carbon emission targets for these companies. And many of these companies, for example, electric vehicle companies or companies that are getting into the electric vehicle space have serious significant issues with the cobalt that is mined for this, coming out of open pit mines in the Congo, staffed by 12-year-old child, effectively slaves, uh, that, that is mining this cobalt. It has then moved almost all of these heavy metals are processed in China, where there aren't nearly the same environmental protections for this kind of stuff, and then brought here to be in these batteries. And yet none of that is, is factored into most of these ESG ratings, especially the ones coming out of big companies like BlackRock, because they are monomaniacally focused, so they will give a high, E rating to a company that is moving into electric vehicles, even though it creates all kinds of other environmental problems that maybe worse, arguably are, than, than their carbon emissions from a normal internal combustion engine. So I agree. I do think you should look at a company at the full spectrum. You should look at the long-term prospects. But ESG is actually there to cover for those things, to, to, to hide some of the skeletons and the problems in these, in these companies, which is why some of the most I always say it's a refuge for charlatans because that's why some of these companies are okay to go along with ESG because it actually covers for their problem. Will Hild, Executive Director of Consumers Research, thank you so much for joining us on Rising today. Thanks so much for having me on.
How's your mental health these days? Well, that might depend on how conservative your parents are. A new report from our next guest, Jonathan Rothwell, indicates that on a number of vectors, conservative parents perform better with their children than their liberal counterparts, leading to better mental health results for their kids. Rothwell writes, parental political ideology is a strong predictor of parenting style. Liberal parents had the lowest scores, meaning they were the least likely to endorse items indicating warm, disciplined parenting. Just 40% of liberal parents scored above average on the index, whereas 71% of very conservative parents and 56% of conservative parents did. As with parenting practices, political ideology and attitudes towards marriage are also strongly predictive of parent-child relationships. Very conservative parents, on average, enjoy the strongest relationships with their adolescent children, and liberals experience the worst. The difference is large and statistically significant at 95% confidence levels. Conservative parents are eight percentage points more likely to be in a good relationship with their adolescent child than liberal parents, and the gap is 14 percentage points between very conservative and liberal parents. Rothwell's research led him to conclude that adolescents with very conservative parents are 16 to 17 percentage points more likely to be in good or excellent mental health compared to their peers with very liberal parents. Only 55% of adolescents of liberal parents reported good or excellent mental health compared to 77% of those with conservative or very conservative parents. Here now to discuss his findings is principal economist with Gallup, Jonathan Rothwell. Welcome to Rising. Thanks for joining us. Let's start by breaking down why exactly this might be. You point out that conservative parents are more likely to adopt what has previously been referred to as an authoritative parenting style. First, what is an authoritative parenting style, and why do you think it is conservative parents and very conservative parents in particular that might be more likely to take on that style? Well, the style is characterized by demandingness and warmth or responsiveness. Those are the two dimensions. Demandingness or lack of demandingness is one dimension. The other is warmth or coldness. And this style was developed in the psychology research literature by Diana Baumrind, uh, Eleanor McCoby, and other psychologists in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It's been uh, documented through hundreds of studies since that this style is highly predictive of depression, anxiety, and other forms of mental illness, and the optimal style is, is called authoritative by Baumrind, and that combines the expectations and high demands that a parent brings when he or she disciplines and enforces rules and regulations with the warmth and responsiveness that comes with child-centeredness. So if I were to explore some kind of relationship between sunburns and human behavior, I could find in the data, if I conducted research, that it seems that everyone who ate ice cream one day ended up having a sunburn. And then I concluded that maybe eating ice cream causes sunburns. I would be overlooking the fact that people tend to eat ice cream when they're outside in the sun, enjoying a warm day. And it's actually the sun that causes sunburns. What, if any, confounding variables did you look into in the research here that conservatives may be more likely to not report when they're experiencing mental health problems, that it's a part of the culture to either not recognize mental health problems as real or to sort of mask them to seem strong. What variables did you look into other than parenting style that could explain this correlation uh, with conservative parents and high reported mental health status? 
Great question. So uh, quite a few is, is the short answer. We looked at education, household income, race, ethnicity, the sex of the parent, the sex of the child, the age of the child, uh, subjective reports of how comfortable their standard of living is from the parent's perspective. We also looked at mental health measured by what the youth reports versus what the, the parent reports and found that they were well aligned. And uh, I'd also say that we're not the first to identify the relationship between uh, liberal adolescence and, and mental health problems. This has been something that the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt has written a lot about recently. And of course, uh, many psychologists have documented the uh, alarming rise in suicide, depression, and other mental health problems that we've seen over the last 10 years among adolescents in the United States. It's also my understanding, Jonathan, that while conservatives might be less likely to seek treatment for things like mild depression or mild emotional disorders, they're actually more likely to seek treatment for severe depressive disorder or severe anxiety. Is that accurate? I can't say that I've come across that literature and, and we're, we weren't uh, really looking into that in, in, in a great deal of depth for this report, but I can tell you that in addition to the, the subjective items where the parents are describing mental illness symptoms among of their children and, and, the, and the children are reporting their level of well-being, we also documented that those subjective measures are highly correlated with whether or not the child is currently receiving psychiatric medication and the probability that the child has recently visited a, a doctor to discuss psychological problems. So I'm curious, were urban and rural uh, areas also considered in the confounding variables list? I don't know if I remember you saying it. I can imagine a world where, you know, we see a correlation currently in the data and voter trends of participation in Republican primaries and voting more conservative in rural areas, and also oftentimes an increase in actually mental health issues in conservative areas. A lot of these, you know, towns, small towns across America have been left behind by a lot of industries for, you know, this sort of urban sprawl we've seen, this trend to be in more urban areas. Likewise, we see a trend for urban areas to be more liberal, but I can definitely recognize that living in a, you know, urban versus rural area could contribute to a child's mental health. Did you look into the, the rural urban divide at all in the research or find any trends there? Uh, we didn't have quite enough sample, I'd say, to look in great depth at, in uh, rural versus urban, depending on how you define it. There didn't seem to be any uh, uh, large differences by educational attainment, socioeconomic status, though, surprisingly. So other work, uh, notably by Ann Case and Angus Deaton, uh, two Princeton economists, have, has, have found that deaths of despair have increased quite a bit among less educated white Americans who, who tend to live in rural areas. Uh, lately, though, uh, there's been some convergence, as, as they themselves have noted, and, and that other communities are starting to see rising deaths from alcohol use, drug use, uh, accidental overdoses, and, and suicide, even in, in many urban areas. So it seems like that may have first sort of spiked in rural areas, but is now very much an urban problem too. And it's th that applies to adults who are middle-aged. These trends that we're seeing are, in terms of mental health decline, are, are concentrated in, in adolescence in terms of rising depressive symptoms of depression and anxiety. And I think the, it's well established that that is happening very much in urban areas as well. 
Your study also looked into the potential negative effects of what you call adverse effects on the mental health of adolescents. Can you walk us through what some of those adverse effects you looked at were, and how much can a good parenting style mitigate those negative effects? Sure, yeah, great question. So, uh, of course, losing a parent uh, to death or having a parent move out of the house because he or she has been imprisoned or through a divorce that may have gone very badly and that parent is no longer part of the, considered part of the family or household can be traumatic for the child. A feeling rejected or abandoned by a parental figure could be uh, traumatic for the child. Those are some of the things we asked about in addition to how safe they feel on a, on a five point scale. And th those, those sorts of questions come from uh, measures that were developed by the CDC and fielded on some of their surveys. And they are correlated, as you would expect, with, with the adolescent's mental health. And, and so avoiding those is important. But we, what we do find is that the overall quality of the relationship with the parent is far more important. So, and, and this is the, the parent who's reporting on the survey, not necessarily all of the parents that are in the child's life. Uh, but a strong relationship with that parent is is has a bigger effect on their mental health than 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 those kind of self reports of, of 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 losing a parent or or uh, feeling rejected by another parent. I find it interesting this this quality of parent child relationship that there was actually no real correlation measured across socioeconomic status. That socioeconomic status or the family's household income was not a determinative factor in the parent-child relationship. Can you just speak on that finding a little bit? Sure, the, in, in general, the parenting style didn't really differ by socioeconomic status, which was also surprising to me, but consistent with work that's come out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics when they've investigated parenting relationships and long-term effects on, on adolescents. So uh, it, there does seem to be a robust finding there that that parents are not necessarily better or worse in terms of their warmth and demandingness if they have higher or lower levels of education or household income, which to me is a very encouraging finding that suggests you can't, you can't buy high-quality parenting and high-quality child-parent relationships. It really comes from complex combinations of, of sort of the culture, the how you were raised as a child, how you understand what it means to be a good parent, and even if someone had necessarily a, you know a, a difficult childhood they're not destined to be a uh, to have to have difficulty as a parent we do see that there was some relationship there but it was not very strong and uh, what was much stronger in terms of predicting whether you have a good relationship with your children was how well you'll get along with your spouse and just one quick final question for you um, going back to your answer about deaths of despair between rural and urban areas converging what is your definition of an urban area, just for our viewers to understand? A city, uh, population of uh, you know, several thousand. Yeah, I think the, the census definition has a pretty low bar, but I'm thinking of really the large metropolitan areas in the United States, where you typically have 500,000 residents in the, in the city and suburbs together. Perfect. Thank you so much for clarifying, and thanks for joining us on Rising today, Jonathan Rothwell. Fascinating study. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. It might be war of the worlds happening right now on this third rock from the sun. 
The Messenger reports that on New Year's Day, numerous police officers swiftly responded to a Miami mall as a brawl ensued among a group of teens wielding sticks, launching fireworks, and causing chaos for local businesses. However, some observant social media users say that the substantial police mobilization, which even included officers armed with high-powered rifles, was unrelated to the teenage disturbance. Instead, they assert that the situation involved extraterrestrial phenomena. The basis for this claim is an aerial image that you see that purportedly depicts a slender gray entity ranging from 7 to 10 feet in height lurking near a promenade close to a row of police cruisers. Ex-user Gold Lion posted this video, which we have a screenshot of up on the screen now, of a massive police response in Miami, which conservative commentator ex-user DC Drano responded. So are we not going to be told the truth about why Miami had possibly the biggest police response I've ever seen in my life? They're saying it was for teenagers fighting? What really happened? And another conservative commentator, Matt Walsh, wrote, it's frankly absurd to suggest that this incident was anything but an alien invasion. Enthusiastic amateur investigators noted that the slender gray entity closely resembled a similar being reportedly observed by a family in Nevada last May. According to the family's account, they witnessed a flash of light in the sky before encountering two beings, each standing up to 10 feet tall. Additionally, some users drew attention to reports of seven-foot-tall aliens causing disturbances among local villagers in Peru earlier this year. Subsequent investigations supposedly revealed that these entities were, in fact, illegal gold miners utilizing jetpacks, which is almost weirder than aliens somehow. <laughs> but um, I'm a, I'm, as you know, Jessica, we cover UFOs a lot on this channel. Um, I'm very open-minded about all of it. I'm a little skeptical of the Miami story just because... I would think we would have more footage if there was a massive a brawl apparently happening at the same time as the aliens and there's all these people at the mall. I want some cell phone footage. I think it's weird that the only footage we have so far is this aerial footage that sort of briefly shows this shadowy figure. I don't know. This one to me is a little bit far-fetched. Why don't we have any kind of interview of someone who was there that night. Why aren't the police like, nah, for sure wasn't an alien, just teenagers, this must have been photoshopped. None of the teenagers who were brawling want to clarify whether or not a 10-foot-tall alien was there. Like, I really want someone who was on the scene to tell us a little bit something more. I love that in Peru, they saw people with jetpacks and was like, yeah, that's a that's a seven to 10 foot tall person. They're like eight feet high. Um, <laughs> also, the jetpacks, it could have been a Mandalorian. Maybe they're Star Wars fans. They employ jetpacks as a part of their getup and they were in a mining place. Maybe they were looking for best car. There's all kinds of explanations for why they thought this was an alien. But yes, illegal gold miners, reasonable explanation. The Nevada case. We don't really have an explanation for that one. This could be another 10-foot-tall alien. I'm alarmed that the alien stories that we have, they're that big. I'm like half the size of that thing. That's terrifying. But it could explain uh, a little bit why they don't want to hang out with us because they are way bigger than us, and that is scary. And teenagers breaking out in a fight could have been started by them seeing the alien, pushing into each other, trying to run away from it. And then they just start fighting each other. I don't know. Maybe the alien did cause the teenager fight. And the teenager fights why they responded. And then there was just a big alien there. It's possible.
Yeah, two totally unrelated events, possibly. Um, I did see the, the video of the teenage fight. Um, it looks bad, but not for the number of police cars that we saw in that aerial footage from Miami. So I will admit that part is a little weird. I did see a video from an individual who claimed to be in the mall when this incident happened. He said that they heard fireworks followed by gunshots and a stampede of people running away from the area. Him and whoever he was with decided to also leave the mall. And it was then that he claims he saw these tall, shadowy figures. Um... But again, in an age where everybody is constantly recording everything, everybody whips their cell phones out at the first sight of some kind of conflict, whether verbal or physical, it just seems a little weird that nobody caught a better uh, image of these things on their camera. Some people are actually claiming that these are the Nephilim described in the book of Enoch, which I talked about on this show before and got a lot of heat for. To, for the record, I don't think that that's what's happening in this case, but that was trending on Twitter, which I find really fascinating um, because a lot of people are attributing a biblical or, um, I guess, spiritual explanation to what's been happening with these extraterrestrials. There's sort of a debate over whether these are really just um, of beings made, of, of, made up of biological matter that exists elsewhere in the universe, or if these are perhaps demons or some other uh, thing from the spiritual realm that has crossed over into our world. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I would err on the side of demons generally, as we know, because I'm a crazy Catholic person. But um, I, to me, I think maybe the Miami thing is a distraction from what's been going on with the government cover-up of UFOs um, that we've been talking about on this channel, which has a lot more evidence for it than this specific incident. Amber, I'm curious. I'm on Team Aliens, by the way. I believe all of the UFOs are aliens. I don't think they're demons, but what does it mean if they are demons? Is that what the Bible says when it's the end times? Um, I mean, that could be part of it, but I think demons uh, can show up for all kinds of reasons, and they have throughout history. Um, I mean, if you— The in Miami, Amber. What's that? It's, it must be the sinners in Miami attracting the demons. Well, it could be. There's a lot of sin down there from what I've heard. But um, I, we would have to go into, like, a whole conversation about, like, Catholic exorcisms. And we should actually get Monsignor Stephen Rossetti on. He was a, a former um, chaplain to the Washington Nationals baseball team and has also been performing exorcisms for like 30 years or something. Um, I would definitely recommend his books. They're absolutely fascinating about the way that demonic uh, de demons can manifest in someone. And it's not just um, always a takeover of the person's body. Sometimes he calls it a demonic oppression where they're afflicted by it, but it's not a total possession. So I don't know, it's fascinating stuff, but it would take a long time to get into all of the specifics about how exactly it works and why a demon might present themselves and. Um, but generally, you are correct to allude to the fact that if people are sinning more, then that would perhaps provide a wider opening to a demonic portal, I guess you could say, um, just to speak generally. See, I, I think I would like to believe it's aliens. I am terrified of demons and right. ghosts and all of that stuff. Watched way too many scary movies as a kid. To me, aliens are fun. As we all know, I want to be beamed up by them. Recently, I've been very disappointed that so many of the pictures and media of aliens, they're always beaming up cows. Like, what do they want with the cows? And what do cows have that I don't have? Delicious like, why steak. do they want the cows and not me? <laughs> I don't know. Do humans have fillets <laughs> or ribeyes? I don't know.
<laughs> Maybe they saw an Arby's commercial. They like intercepted cable right. news at the perfect time, became obsessed with beef. I want to know why, why cows? Why do they love the cows? That's a great question. Um, well, we're going to stay on the UFO story. As, as our viewers know, we don't normally joke about it this much. We do take it seriously. And we do believe that the government is not giving us all the information. Um, but the Miami story, maybe not, um, maybe not the best example of what's been going on. We'll leave it there and be back with more Rising after this. Mark Zuckerberg and Meta are spying on you? Say it ain't so. New reporting indicates that Facebook is planning a new system to track users' data even as they leave the site. Journalist Jason Kint highlighted Facebook will be following users' web activity even after they have turned off a button that, when selected, will theoretically disconnect your past activity from your account. Kint explained that a majority of Facebook's data uniquely comes from third parties and that Facebook has tracking pixels across more than 8 million websites. Per Kint, Facebook needs a way to opt users back into tracking and dodge emerging law so it appears they're rolling out a new feature that allows them to claim the rights to track users when they click on a link in one of their apps, which use an embedded browser. Meta is a desperate surveillance capitalist with much of its 97% in revenues and profits jeopardized by signal loss, which really means your privacy rights. So it's sad that whenever we use social media or any kind of online platform, it's free because they are taking something much more valuable from us than maybe a subscription fee of like $1.99 a month. And it's our personal data. That's very valuable for companies to market products to us. And I'm sure a lot of other, you know, very more, male more malevolent things, as we know the Cambridge Analytica case. But what came out of the Cambridge Analytica case was one of the whistleblowers saying something that always stuck with me. And it's that data itself is not bad, it's not evil, it's like a knife. You can use it to make a sandwich, but you can also use it to murder people. So it really depends on how you use the data. I think we know that Facebook is using the data, selling it to people trying to market products to us, but in the past has used it to manipulate the political process in the United States. There's debate over how effective that was, but the fact that they allowed people to try is really what unnerves me. Yeah, I'm also really disturbed by the tracking of young people's data in particular across apps like Facebook, TikTok, uh, and, and Twitter, or X, I guess. Um, that seems to be even more dastardly, I guess, than the tracking of adults' data. And it seems like these companies sort of intentionally make it very difficult to figure out how you're supposed to turn off these tracking mechanisms. And also, they make their terms of service so impossibly long that it's pretty obvious that no one is actually going to read it. And it turns out you've ended up basically signing away a lot of your rights to your own personal data, which is a, a serious problem. I remember being very disturbed back when uh, all of these websites first started um, asking you to accept or decline cookies. And now it seems like we've come so far since then with, um, with not much conversation or, or regulation as to how exactly all of this data is used and shared and, and used for profit, most importantly, by these companies. It's something Google does as well. A lot of these huge tech companies really try and make it impossible for you to opt out of various features. Google actually lobbied, essentially, they just paid many cell phone companies to be the default browser on smartphones. 
And it's very difficult to find out how to change your smartphone browser to go into the settings and locate it. Most people just never do it because it's been made nearly impossible by people who are programmers of phones who know exactly how to make it nearly impossible. It's really sad. And these tech companies work together still today. If you search the word Facebook on Google, you don't have a news icon. When you use Google as a browser to search, whatever keywords you plug in, there is an icon that comes up where you can filter it to only news articles, same way you can filter your search results to images. But when you search Facebook, that news option is not there. These tech companies really work together to make the information about how they're stealing our data very hard to gain access to. And that's really scary as well, because we're very fearful of the oligopolies that we have in the United States. But when you have companies that are mining our data in mass working together, you, you essentially have a monopoly. Uh, the effect of this is that they have control over all of our data and the time that we spend online. That's very, very scary. And there's been very little legislation by members of Congress, most of which who have no idea how big this problem is or what's really going on. But there's been really no legislation to regulate these sorts of things. And I have a feeling that by the time it comes, it's going to be far too late. You're exactly right to point out the big tech monopoly, and it's not just on data, but it's on speech, too. A lot of these companies work together to suppress narratives that they either object to or find inconvenient for whatever reason, um, whether it's YouTube taking off videos that mention a certain topic, uh, Facebook and X, uh, not so much X anymore, but to some extent still, yes, Facebook and X taking down posts um, that either the Biden administration asked them to take down or just politicians or even just political activists have asked them to remove um, because they find it objectionable. And you had this case where uh, conservatives were trying to make alternative platforms for free speech, like Parler and Getter, and they were sort of systematically crushed by this big tech monopoly, where Amazon owns the largest web hosting platform, Amazon Web Service AWS. And they simultaneously took these platforms off of AWS, forced them to find another web service provider. Then you had the app stores across Apple and Samsung removing the uh, ability to download the apps from their app stores. And you had uh, companies like Facebook, X, Google, reducing search results for them, suppressing them in their algorithms, uh, reducing the ability to, um, to share information about these other platforms. One of the things that Facebook and X do in order to keep people on their platforms longer is they actually suppress posts that feature links to outside websites. So even if you put a YouTube link on X, your post is going to not get as much engagement, not get as many eyeballs because they don't want you clicking off the platform to go to YouTube. Um, so all of these companies really do work in tandem to prevent people from sharing information freely. Um, so that combined with the data aspect of this tells me it's absolutely far past time for Congress to provide some type of regulation of the industry so that uh, basically the, the biggest public square in our country now is online. That should be as free as we can, can possibly make it just for the sake of democratic norms and open dialogue. Yeah, I, there's so many people out there where when you talk about any kind of economic regulation, their hairs go up. A lot of people work in small businesses, own small businesses. They hear regulation. They think 
it's going to be harder to operate my business if there's more regulation. When I think most Americans, and it's definitely the policy that's most needed, support regulation of these huge tech companies who have way too much power. It's not really a free market. If you have a decision maker like Amazon, who is able to offer their services and their platform to very large companies that abide by the kind of censorship that they support politically, and they can kick out anyone who is allowing for free speech. Uh, now it's much more expensive, nearly impossible to raise the capital to get the same resources offered by AWS. Many people rely on it. And so now you're in this position where if AWS doesn't want you to be operating, guess what? You're not gonna be operating. That's not really a free market. Yes, it's free of governmental regulation, but the government should regulate these very large corporations so that there is competition in the economy, that we actually have a market and don't have what we have now, which is an economy essentially run by a group of people with the most capital that have the most ownership share in our largest companies. Those same people lobby Congress to not pass this kind of common sense regulation of monopolies. And I think most of the American people are very receptive to anyone who will speak on breaking up these monopolies. Most people can relate to the problem on a fundamental level because the most common monopolies we have are really for our internet and energy. So whether you're renting an apartment or you own a house, uh, a house, most places only have one option for energy, one option for internet provider. So this kind of monopoly takeover of the American economy is something I think most Americans are familiar with. And the only reason politicians aren't running on this is because they're essentially paid not to. Yeah, I love that you pointed out the difference between a free market from a libertarian perspective, which is no regulation whatsoever of any uh, of any companies versus a true free market, which should allow for competition. And, and especially that for small businesses, which are, are really the cornerstone, I think, of the American co uh, economy. That's going to wrap it up for us this week. Jessica, it was great to be on the program with you again. Another good Friday, Amber. Absolutely. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next Friday. Bye, y'all.